Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Comero. I'm going solo today, and uh, this is going to be a really interesting one, an interesting episode, because it's been a heck of a week in terms of who, what has gone on with Duke. And I was considering recording after Stephen F. Austin, but I just thought it was better if I keep up the same schedule and... Uh, I really don't want to do like after individual games specifically until uh, it gets towards the end of the year. I mean, once it gets to the ACC tournament and NCAA tournament, then it's every it's every day I record a uh, recap, preview, everything. But right now, I mean, I just think anything would be an overreaction. So I decided to just kind of wait with the Tuesday Friday schedule, pretty much all non conference season. I thought it'd be best just to release this on a Monday, and then we. But what we have in the last week is basically two different seasons, because I mean there was one reaction after Stephen F. Austin, and then a different one after Winthrop, solely because of the Cassius Stanley factor. But I think a lot more actually does apply, and I'm going to talk about it. But before I do that. There are a couple things that I wanted to kind of get off my chest. First, or not get off my chest, just mention. Uh, First, I have gone a stretch of episodes without mentioning this. So here is a reminder that I am looking for a permanent co-host, not a guest, a co-host who's super passionate about Duke and is self-motivated in every way. Those who have listened consistently know that uh, when I've recorded with Joe, um, who's been terrific, I've done the mass majority of the speaking, and that's basically been because, I mean, obviously I'm well prepared, but I, I got, I, I basically went into each episode completely blind with only my own thoughts, and I've been clear with Joe that without him giving any input or feedback to anything we do, if it's just going to be uh, to kind of get on Skype and go, then it's just going to be me asking him his opinions whenever it feels right. So I'm more than willing to accept and embrace a more involved co-host who is reliable. So if you're interested and you're serious about it, uh, email DukeBasketballCorner at gmail. I'd love to take this uh, podcast to the next level. Uh, Another thing, there has not been any pod reviews on Apple Podcasts since the summer. And I do see the numbers keep increasing uh, in terms of listeners, so I've always said I, I hate self-promo. It makes me cringe. I hate asking for anything, but, I mean, I put the work into this thing, so help me out. Give me some ratings and reviews, especially those reviews, which will most importantly help others find the show. I mean, that's how the whole algorithm thing works in the podcast world. Uh, next thing, basically, I think one, one thing that applies to all of this, this isn't a rant. You could think of it as that, but it very much applies to everything I talk about and just this whole podcast in general, what you're going to get out of it, what I do. All right, so cliches and kind of generalities are easy. They cover a broad spectrum. They're rarely any sort of fleshed out, though. It's why I did a short segment towards the end of the season preview, kind of giving a list of kind of common empty cliches in order to mock them, not in a mean way but in a way that just makes everyone who uh, listened a little more aware of when others use them and self-aware as well. 
I probably mention the word cliche more than many in every podcast simply because I kind of always want to have it in mind just to kind of force me not to uh, not settle for being lazy. And lazy may be more popular and make for easy takes, but hey, maybe that's why I've never caught on. But honestly, I have no desire to try that, uh, I guess, avenue. And even if I did, it would just come off unnatural. So why am I even talking about cliches? Because in terms of college basketball game and player analysis, that's pretty much all you'll find besides outlier people and outlier work. In terms of the stories, there's some great actual writers. And that's not disparaging those writers. It's not disparaging what they do. Because not only do I respect it, but I also kind of feel a kinship as someone who grew up in journalism. I've uh, written most of my life. Though at this point, I'm kind of trying to recall my writing abilities. I'm like I'm like an infinitely uh, kind of lower-tiered uh, Bill Simmons, who also wrote a ton and now pretty much only does podcasts similar, similar to myself. But again, I am trying, so uh, it'll, it'll come um, on the website, obviously. All right, so, I mean, either way... I love those stories behind the game, the personalities, and the descriptive tone which can make moments of a game come alive, but I mean, when it comes down to it, how much does it really tell you to know a team had more rebounds or higher shooting percentage in terms of why a team won? For some, even many, even many it tells you plenty, more than enough, and I doubt those people listen to my podcast. I call uh, I call giving basic box score numbers in terms of when describing the game surface analysis. I mean that's what it is. When I but when I say I love to focus on the how and why as much sometimes more than the what, I mean it. But all that means is after watching, rewatching, and then checking stats, I'm trying to vocalize the context of what's happening and break it down into an easy to understand legitimate narrative. It's. Not, I think some people, they, they hear numbers or they read numbers and they get all out of sorts. They think it's just, oh, nerd, nerd type things. I'm not just like sitting here mentioning this person's per is blank, per player efficiency uh, rating, all, all that stuff. All the advanced analytics, there are some of it I use. But what I'm trying to do is just take a category and trying to break it down into smaller categories and figure out why it's occurring. I'm trying to say like if... Uh, if a player is shooting a certain th- a certain percentage, I'm trying to figure out why. What type of shots do they take? Where are they from? And, and all that. That's not advanced analytics. That's just breaking it down into kind of easier bites to, to understand why it's happening. All right, so having said all that, I did something I honestly rarely do after Duke games because, to be honest, I don't really need to see all the cliches and hot takes and nonsense. So before recording this pod, I went back and searched uh, the internet for Duke versus Stephen F. Austin coverage with uh, an open mind, even though I kind of knew what I would likely find. And I mean, I was correct. However you want to take that, sadly, I was correct, or it is what it is. I was. I, it, do, it doesn't matter. But basically, there's nothing on the internet describing how and or why the biggest upset in 15 years, according to ESPN stats and info, occurred. Obviously, Duke's first non-conference loss at Cameron since 2000 occurred. RIP to, to uh, Bootsy Thornton internet searches. It's it's really been a hell of a run there. Um, I mean, outside of the super worthy 
uh, Nathan Bain coverage of how much attention uh, the victory raised for his family in the Bahamas, who lost pretty much everything in Hurricane Dorian. It's basically the same two articles on a loop, with the focus either being, hey, wow, what an upset, how about Stephen F. Austin? Or, wow, what an upset, Duke lost. Followed by a description of the final play and basically five stats or facts. I mean, basically, it's like Duke was up 15. Duke got many more rebounds. Duke turned the ball over a bunch. Duke missed a bunch of free throws. Coach K said Stephen F. Austin played harder and his team was complacent after the 2K Classic. That's it. If you think that's enough, that's fine. That's fine. I, I don't. When you break it down, there's a lot more to it. And again, that is in no way disparaging anyone who writes that type of stuff or reads that type of stuff and enjoys it. And some of the writers, are I mean, they get really descriptive in how they describe the action in the game and everything like that. So again, I appreciate everything about that. But in terms of the how-why of a game, that's what I try to get into. I mean, it kind of reminded me of UMBC's upset of Virginia a few years ago. When the analysis was basically UMBC crushed UVA in the second half. And everything else was just kind of flowery descriptions of the art of an, of an upset. I mean, I remember listening to uh, the CBS pod with Gary Parish and Matt Norlander, who are both fantastic. And they talked for like an hour about the game. Yet, somehow never actually talked about like what actually occurred in the game. Like, what UMBC did. What UVA struggled with. Anything like that. Anything. It was all it was all the stories surrounding it, which to me is I don't know. It just doesn't make sense as to why you can't combine both aspects. I'm not asking for Jordan Sperber type analysis, which is a little more uh, niche, niche, however you say that word. Um, and I've, I hope everyone knows how much respect I have for Jordan. I had him on twice last year on the pod. I hope to have him again. He is he is uh, he's amazing. But he also attracts a very a very different type of crowd. I have a huge respect for Jordan. I'm just saying there's room for game discussion as well, unless there's just literally zero demand for it. Obviously, we all know supply and demand. So that's just kind of, that's, my, my, my point there is, I mean, there was just a big deal. I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, these days it seems like forever ago if you talk about something like two days after. This is almost, uh, I mean, it's less than, a, it's, it's basically a week after, and uh, I'm sure nobody ever wants to think about it again. And I don't actually like the way the Duke, official Duke account, they don't ever, like, they won't do the highlights uh, for losses. They basically almost act like it, did, it didn't happen. I think there's a lot to learn from losses. I think just acting like it didn't happen, I don't know. I, I just, I just when you apply it to other aspects of life, I just, I just think there is a lot to learn from just every spectrum of uh, good and bad. That's just my opinion. All right. Uh, another thing, bef- um, Mike Krzyzewski post-game press conferences. These intrigue me because of what I find frustrating. First of all, there's no other time he's asked questions. Like, it's basically post-game. I think there's like a preseason type of thing. There might be a post-season thing, but like, that's it. They last typically around 5 to 15 minutes, and 40 to 50% of it 
is him giving thoughts before any questions are even asked. Also, many questions aren't even completed before he starts answering. The kicker is the actual questions being asked. When I was a kid, uh, they kind of fit into the realm of what I would call nothing burgers. Just kind of like a general inquiry about a team or a player, which he responds to with a general answer. A specific answer is rare, and since I've watched more of them this season than actually like every other season combined, I'm not even sure why. Maybe it's just because I find this team so interesting. I've noticed there's answers he gives which really deserve follow-ups but never occur because, I mean, he, he leaves no doubt who's in charge. Look, I obviously have tons of respect for Coach K. I give him that respect constantly. I've, I vocalize that as much as possible. But there should be accountability for everyone, in my opinion, and it's frustrating how that never seems to occur. I mean, I've mentioned the Kansas 2018 game constantly in terms of how much it frustrates me that he was never asked about the specifics of that game in terms of the strategy, and he never will be unless he just wants to talk about it. I'm also self-aware enough to realize how easy it is to just kind of vent about this stuff on a podcast. I mean, what would happen if I was in the room? I wouldn't be nervous to ask the tougher questions or more specific questions, considering I'd do it respectfully, but the issue would be if I felt worried, I'd not be allowed to do any future pressers. I don't know. I mean, I kind of waver on how to take what he says a lot of the time, but... There's always respect and appreciation for his career from my end. Having said that, I will mention um, in this pod some of the things I wish he would have explained a bit to help me understand. It just, I mean, that's the way things should go in order to be as knowledgeable as possible when I talk and write about Duke. I mean, people really praise players who go into detail after games in the pros. I, I mean, these college players are not like little tykes. I mean... They are knowledgeable about the game, but I mean, they're asked these general questions, so they don't really talk about anything specific. They're so they're so protected by the Duke program. It is a it is a bubble, and uh, I don't know. I don't know if reporters are told they can only ask specific things or what. But I don't know. I just find it very interesting because I try to know as much as possible, and you just you don't know. The Duke program is, I mean, it's like Secret Service. I mean, when, when you think about Cassius Stanley, his health, hopefully nothing's been announced. Uh, I mean, I checked, I'm recording this Monday morning. Nothing's been announced as I know. I mean, still, from all I know, or all we know, it is it is the hamstring. They're hoping he can come back, I guess, uh, I think uh, Christmas around that time. So uh, hopefully for, I guess that would be... Uh, what is it, uh, BC on uh, New Year's Eve? Yeah, I think they play BC on the 31st. So um, he would miss, that would be uh, obviously this week with Michigan State, Virginia Tech, and I think they play uh, Cornell. They might. I think they play an Ivy League school sometime uh, mid-December. I think that's it, though. I think they only have uh, three games before it starts. I could be wrong. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, we don't really know about Cassius Stanley. It's funny. Uh, he <laughs> tweeted uh, yesterday, the game's new album is really good, or just game. I actually thought it was the game, but uh, the rapper's name is just game. And, uh, of course, every response was like, are you okay? Are you okay? It's 
It's it's funny. I just because he hadn't even tweeted in a while, so for him to tweet like then when everyone's probably like staring at his Twitter account, hoping to see something, is amusing. I kind of think he was just messing with people in a way. But hey, uh, good for him. Listen to uh, Game's new album. I actually think uh, Doctor's Advocate. That's like one of the hardest al- rap albums of the last. I'd say 20 years. I mean, if you just ignore the 7 million Dr. Dre shout outs, I mean, the beats and every, I mean, that is, that is a hard album. I love it. So uh, anyway, basketball. All right. So I mean, there's Stephen F. Austin, there's Winthrop, two very different games, but I mean, there are plenty of ways to relate what's happening. And I think the best way is to kind of go over each separately. And if, if, if you're the type that once a game is over, you don't like to think about it again, especially once the game, if, they, if it's lost, you don't ever want to think about it again. I don't know if my podcast is the right thing for you, but because I want to talk about everything. I want to, I want to find out what happened. I want to learn from it. Last podcast I did, it seems forever ago, it was... After the 2K Classic, the thing I kept saying was how much I wanted to appreciate the positive, the positive in the moment. Because they had beaten Kansas, they were undefeated. They won the 2K Classic. They beat a uh, a Georgetown team. I think can uh, be a really good team by the end of the season. I think they lost again um, after Duke. But either way, I I I wanted to really emphasize that. But it's, I actually listened back just to hear how much I kind of, I guess you could say, qualified that a bit. And it was remarkable. I, I think like four different times, I just said, I, I would list off like all the concerns and say like, yeah, these present problems. These are going to be an issue. So, and I would say, I just want to appreciate what's going on that's really good right now. Because there are concerns, and I mentioned everything, whether it be um, the shoot, the free throw shooting, the three point shooting, the uh, lack of a secondary ball handler, the missing of close shots, the fact that it took insane offensive rebounding numbers to be able to score. To the the fact, I mean, the fact that if you took away Central Arkansas at that point in time. After Georgetown, I think they were ranked like 342 out of 353 teams in transition. For a team that runs as much as they do, that's not where you want to be. Because, I mean, yeah, they're pressuring teams, but it's not really working out the way you'd think. And with Georgetown, it wasn't a fast-paced game. If you just look at tempo, that's possessions. And that can be misleading sometimes because anytime a team starts a new possession, I mean, it can happen if, if somebody just throws the ball out of bounds. Another team gets it. It's a new possession. So, And if it happens again, then it's just going to keep going like that. So it's going to look like it was a really fast-paced game. But it wasn't. It's just teams got a bunch of possessions. Obviously, that's not always how it happens. And over the course of a season... It can it, it, it typically works out like Virginia is going to have obviously less possessions than every other team. I I think it is something just to keep in mind because Duke, when you look at the turnovers, says they forced a lot, and I disagree 
not, not disagree, but I just always try because of the way that they've occurred. I don't use the word forced. They really haven't. They, there's been a lot of turnovers, but they haven't forced a ton. In terms of live ball, there's been occasional. But I think those stats are misleading too. They're a little bit skewed from some of the games where the competition was a little less. And even so, like they didn't convert on them. They're not, they, I mean, for a team that wanted to run as much as they did, they were not a good running team. So that's why it was interesting how they beat Georgetown with more of a half-court style. Georgia State, I thought Georgia State hurt themselves by kind of zoning Duke because Georgia State was doing really well running and gunning in the first half. I think they were like 5 of 10. And then zoning Duke made it easier for Duke with the offensive rebounds and Duke would just kind of hold the ball nonstop. And their possessions would last forever. I think I mentioned during the last 10 minutes, Duke had the ball pretty much 75% of the time just because they just kept getting offensive rebounds and it was just on a loop. So, I don't know. I mean, the style is interesting because a lot of the weakness of transition when they actually get live ball turnovers, that's different. They are They're not bad, but it's... Running off of the misses when they don't quite have numbers. So usually it's uh, hitting somebody for three and then clanking the three. It's still a wasted possession. Because, it, I mean, it's still, the stats are just as bad as they were before in terms of what Duke is doing in transition off opponent misses. It's great that they want to run, but I think you got to recognize the need for a plan B. Because it's not something that I would say like, oh, in time it'll be fine. Like if you don't have the types of uh, skill sets to make that happen, I don't know. It's going to it's gonna be a little risky. I mean, Cassius Stanley, he's very good in being judicious in terms of when he takes those corner threes. But... I think he's not a natural three-point shooter. He's a, he's a very good three-point shooter, but he's also very judicious in when he takes them, and unfortunately, we don't even have him anymore. We, because obviously I'm part of the team. Um, that's, why I la- that's why last episode, I, I, I went so deep on Joey Baker. Joey Baker, in terms of when he shoots, I get the feeling that's in every time. And that was before... His uh, quote-unquote breakout game. I mean, the, the kid is confident. He is enthusiastic. And I'll get into it more when I when I go into Winthrop. But his defense was good. <laughs> I mean, like, really good. And that shocked me because watching live. And I almost think I might have listened. I might have been influenced by the commentators a little more because, I mean, I was watching on my laptop at that point because my cable provider, Xfinity, sucks, and they don't even allow me to have an AC network, so I have to stream it through uh, somebody else. And I don't have the best view, so um, I think I was just influenced because what was Jordan Cornette, he was just, I don't know. I mean, he kind of got on these narratives. I mean, with especially with the point paints, paints in the point, which was just kind of weird. Um, but 
I don't know. It, it can be easily influenced in terms of, oh, dribble, drive, dribble, drive, which wasn't true all that often. But Baker was great. Once you rewatch, Baker was really, really good. He actually guarded like everyone. He guard, he guarded everyone from uh, Russell Jones, little Russell Jones, to uh, the um, the combo uh, forward to to the to the big. He was guarding everyone, like really versatile and just giving all out effort. I mean, it was really really impressive. I mean, I always knew he could hit shots, but. One thing, uh, after the game even, I was still thinking, like, you're, the team is going to need to uh, make accommodations for him on defense, and I'm not, I don't think they will anymore. I don't. But having said that, it, that could be a very reactionary thing. On offense, I'm pretty good at projecting immediately. But on defense, I mean, we'll see once it gets to, uh, like, the way more talented guys in uh, the ACC. I mean, hey, we got two big games coming up right now with uh, at Michigan's. I mean, first two road games, what a, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you want to call it an inopportune time, but it is what's on the schedule. So, I mean, it is it gets serious right away, like right away. All right, let's start out with, uh, with the K, uh, some of K's comments. I usually don't mention a lot of K comments because I just, I think, I, 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 it's not that I don't take them seriously. It's just, I think he said, he says what he says. <laughs> I don't know what even that means. Um, he said that the guys believe that they were going, I'm starting off with Stephen F. Austin. He said that the guys believe they were going to win and there's not, we tried everything talking to them during the timeouts and they just, they believe they were going to win. Doesn't he want them to believe they're going to win? I think he kind of meant to say they assumed they were going to win. I think I'll take it that way. Because, I mean, just being confident you're going to win, I don't really feel that would be an issue. But And I think the complacency, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean... That doesn't make sense to me. I, I guess in, in a way, I mean, when he says, I mean, after Winthrop, he said a coach, when, when he's going to be asked at the end of his career, what was your toughest opponent? And he said human nature. So I guess it's kind of a relation to that. But even so, I think strategy matters. As much as everyone wants to just say when Duke loses, they, they didn't have heart. They didn't try. No effort, no heart. They they play for the for the back of their jersey, not throwing all the cliches. That's why I, I'm going to mention these. Like t- to me, it just it doesn't make sense. Yes, there's bits and pieces. Human nature absolutely plays a big part. But still, I mean, you gotta you gotta understand. Like, I mean, there's a lot of strategy that goes on. Here and to just ignore that and just to say, hey, Duke is talented, they should beat everyone. Stephen F. Austin, I believe, like Ken Palm, they were the 56th most experienced team. They are the most, the 56th most experienced team in the country. They play together. They know what they're doing. It's like even like North Northwest Missouri State. You could see when a team has experience together, they. They jump up a level because it's just you. You have that chemistry. 
you don't need to think about what you're doing. You just do it because you've done it so many times before. It's routine. Duke doesn't have that. And it's remarkable how quickly the backcourt got it with Trey and Cassius. I'll say that, I mean, I believe that. I still believe that is the best defensive backcourt at Duke. But when you get to the front court, that's a, that's a different story. That is a different story. And we're going to see how or if or when that develops. Because that is no guarantee. And there are specific reasons for that. So what happened with, I would say... What happened with Stephen F. Austin is basically Stephen F. Austin used Duke's aggressiveness against them. I mean, that's that's all there is to it. I mean, to start out, I will say that Duke a lot of a lot of the issues were self inflicted at the start, but e- e- even then, I would say there's. Oh well, you know what they were—they were self-inflicted at the start. There's really no, um, but in any of that. I mean, they—they they started out 13 of 15 shooting, and they were turning Stephen F. Austin over. I mean, for a team that I said is uh, really bad in transition, that's not my opinion. That is statistically and visually very proven. They were doing really well. They were doing super well. I mean, in terms of Duke's uh, transition against Stephen F. Austin, let's see here. It started out, um, Cassius made three made three point field goal um, off a Stephen F. Austin missed field goal, which I said they are not good at. Then a Cassius dunk with Trey assist off a made field goal. So they're running off missed field goals, running off made field goals. They don't even need turnovers. Then uh, a Vernon Carey block with a Wendell Moore assist off, uh, I'm sorry, a Carey dunk with a Wendell assist off a Carey block and defensive rebound. Then a Hurt stealing dunk. I mean, that's four defensive possessions, uh, four offensive uh, uh, possessions in transition. Converted all of them. What is that, three, four, five, six, seven? That, that's, uh, that's nine in four possessions, over two points per possession. Pretty good. And that's 10 minutes into the game. And even after uh, missed uh, three by Cassius, Hurt went two for two um, for free throws off a uh, Stephen F. Austin made field goal. So right, right there you have, uh, what is that, f- five con- converted transition opportunities and six possessions. They finished with... 13 points in 12 possessions. So that looks good at the end of the day, but that's why you have to look into why these stats occur. Because when you start out with uh, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, uh, with 11 points in the first six possessions, then obviously it's not great when you end up with 13 points in 12 possessions at the end. Especially when most of those, uh, most of the successful ones occurred in the first 10 minutes. And when you get down to it, a lot dropped off at a specific point. That specific point was 18 minutes and 33 seconds left after Wendell Moore made two free throws. Let me just uh, reel off a couple stats right here. All right. Free throws. 
Duke was 17 of 22. And Stephen F. Austin was 1 of 3 at that point. From there on, Duke was 7 of 18. Stephen F. Austin, 10 of 14. So when everyone says, oh, Duke shot a billion more free throws, at that point, it was close to even. And Duke made and Duke made less, but shooting more. So it was the first half when it was like way more. And even the first couple minutes of the second. I mean, 17 of 22. And then 7 of 18. Stephen F. Austin, 1 of 3, and then 10 of 14. Turnovers. With, uh, all right, so it was, actually, it looks like I've written down 16 minutes and 16 seconds. I think I did mean 18 minutes and 13, but either way. All right, uh, Duke had 12, Stephen F. Austin had 12 at that point in time. After that, Duke 10 turnovers, Stephen F. Austin, two turnovers. I mean, Duke, basically, I mean, six of seven overtime possessions, Duke turned it over. So I'll go into that. But I just want to kind of reel off these stats real quick. Steals. I guess it is 16-16 left because, I mean, that's what I have written for everything. Um, All right. So Duke, at that point in time, Duke eight steals, Stephen F. Austin seven. From there on out, Duke zero, Stephen F. Austin six. Transition with um, Duke 13, Stephen F. Austin 14. From then on out. Stephen F. Austin, 14. Duke, nothing. Nothing. There's only three possessions Duke even had any transition opportunities. Zero scores, 0 for 3 shooting. Stephen F. Austin, eight possessions, seven scores, 14 points. Yep. Field goals. Like I said, Duke began 13 of 15 with 9 or 3 left in the first half. After that, 14 of 39. So with, uh, again, 16-16 left, Duke was 16 of 29. Stephen F. Austin, 21 of 39. From there on out, Duke 11 of 25. Stephen F. Austin, 15 of uh, 35. A lot more shots for Stephen F. Austin. That's what you're used to for Duke. A lot more shots. But the free throws, that kind of canceled out with Duke having more. You think? Not really, actually, though, when you, when you, when you look into it. Because remember what I said? As the game got second half and overtime, it was almost equal. So that just means Stephen F. Austin had more shots, period. Which isn't common for Duke this year, especially with their crazy offensive rebounding. Three-point field goals. Duke uh, 16-16 in the second half. They were two of nine. Stephen F. Austin was one of six. That's a different one. So Duke was finished three of six, and Stephen F. Austin one of four. And the crazy thing about that is Stephen F. Austin actually hit their first, that was their first made field goal, a uh, three-pointer. And their only other three-pointer was when Duke played zone, which, I mean, that that is wild. That I mean, that's almost like when they came out of Kansas 2018 in that weird 1-3-1 in the second half. I don't know what they were doing playing zone. And he said because Harris was killing them. He'd made one field goal in, in the second half. I don't understand it. Like, it made me, ugh, I don't know. I don't know. That's just kind of an overview of the stats. But what I found interesting is Stephen F. Austin was kind of the counterpuncher. When Duke would come at them, they'd use that against Duke. At some point in time, I mean, this is why I said in the season preview, there has to be that fluid adaptation every single time in-game. Coach K has to be ready to change and 
his, his, his strategy, his rotations, everything. And what's really, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but he is using, I guess, different rotations at some points, but he pretty much just sticks with the same one each time. And I'm not sure how he comes up with it. I mean, it's I mean, what he says is that he can see what's going on, but he just kind of sticks with him the rest of the game, which can work at some points. But I mean, Stephen F. Austin, they really could have used some fresh blood at some point. I mean, right after I said Joey Baker, when I gave my kind of go-to lineup, my projected go-to lineup at the end of the season, Baker was in there. And then to see him get three minutes, I mean, I wasn't projecting it in terms of anywhere immediate, but I mean, a guy like that, you would, you would hope could at least find a way to contribute to a game in which Duke just needs anything they can get. I mean, especially with, uh, I mean, my worry with him was defense. So in a way I could understand, but the way that defense was playing against Stephen F. Austin it just didn't make sense. It wasn't dribble drive. It was not dribble drive. It was basically playmaking from the bigs. It was transition, but I'm t- it was mostly transition um, for a while. But when it got to the half court offense, it was bigs playmaking. And that's where you saw a lot of issues with Vernon Carey, with Matthew Hurt, and with Jack White. A lot of times they would get caught in no man's land. And I mean, a lot of times they were overhelping, to be honest. And with the experience and just the versatility of, of the bigs, they were able to, to find the open man just kind of big to big. I mean, it was almost like what Kansas wanted to do against Duke uh, the first game of the season. But Stephen F. Austin was straight up better at it. So you would, you would have... Uh, you would have Vernon Carey come out, and just as he was about to get there, the big would throw a pass to uh, another big for a layup, or they, they they would basically get the offensive rebound. It was just everything was going on once the ball was dumped inside, once there was a post feed. So if nothing's really happening on the perimeter, and everything starts when there's a post feed, everything starts in the paint, yes, the ball is getting into the paint, but it's not getting there because of dribble penetration. Towards the way end, that's when you saw that there was a really extended pick and roll was used against Duke. So then there was a little more dribble uh, penetration because there was um, extended pick and roll. But most of the time, most of the game, it didn't happen that way. And when it did, it was interesting because it was against Trey, who, I'm not, I mean... Harris, he he was obviously scoring a lot, but Coach K, after the game, he said like we weren't we weren't guarding Harris, we were leaving him, and he's their shooter, and like you would think you would guard the shooter. Harris was not he's he's not a shooter, and he wasn't shooting. I think he made one jump shot the entire game when it's, he arguably pushed off Cassius Stanley. But what but the deal was Wendell Moore started off on Harris. Wendell was okay, but. I think it was smart. It, soon, Cassius Stanley was switched on to Harrison. Cassius was fantastic. I mean, in transition, like when it's a steal, there's only so much you can do. I mean, you never know where uh, the steal is going to come from. And I, I mean, it's not a matter of who's guarding who at that point. 
It's about just getting back in your transition, uh, rotating back. But in terms of half court, I thought Stanley did an amazing job. After a uh, push off, after that push off with like what was something around like four minutes to go around around that time, that's when he switched Trey back on him, and that's when there started to be more penetration. So it was interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Stanley is just he is a he is a dog on defense, and maybe it's just me, but. I try to just stick him on the best guy, like always. I mean, unless it's like a total size differential in any way. I, I, I mean, Stanley's a dog, so I'm not sure why he was taken off because of that one shot. And Coach K said that's why he played zone because Harris was like going crazy. It was really weird. I mean, somebody asked Coach K in the press conference about hey, why'd you play zone? And he starts saying like, oh, we, we still got the lead after that. And Harris was killing us. It's like, okay. I mean, you just spent like the entire press conference talking about how Duke was, just, they let up so many paint points and they let up this and they let up that. And you, they did, they, they didn't look right. Their eyes were all glazed. Like they were still winning at that point. So who cares if they're winning? They actually, I mean, they gave up the lead with that. They were up to, they played zone. The only time they played zone, Stephen F. Austin hit a three. So it was just an odd thing to happen and to totally dismiss it. And you could hear the reporter go, oh, okay. And then that's kind of, it's just like you don't want to upset Kay, but like it's really, to for him to dismiss it, I think it's a very legitimate question. It was a very important time in the game. And, I mean, what was that, like around two minutes left? It's a very odd thing to do to all of a sudden play zone for one possession. You can see Stephen F. Austin played zone against Duke um, for a possession uh, or two in the second half. That was because, like, they all had fouls. And at that point in time, Duke should have been attacking um, with uh, Vernon Carey to try to foul out all of them. But what Duke was doing was just kind of standing up top and trying to enter into Vernon Carey. There's other ways to get the bigs involved. I mean, this is how it goes every year when the offense just gets stagnant and everyone's kind of standing around. You have one option on offense or else you're just going to ISO. And that's what was happening. Like they knew, Stephen F. Austin knew Duke was just kind of just trying to get it into uh, Carey and that's it. And it's still, I mean, towards the end of uh, regulation, they were actually scoring most of the time. I think like the last eight possessions or something, they scored 14 points. It was working, but it was just like, I don't know, it didn't feel like it was going to last. And I've talked in the past about how when it's just so blatant and obvious and predictable, I think it messes with the energy on defense. I think it's important to get everyone involved. And that wasn't happening. And there wasn't much action going on, and I just think it was headed towards bad things, and that's exactly what happened in overtime when the pressure got on. I think uh, with Stephen F. Austin kind of knowing what was going to happen, I think then the pressure, yeah, I mean, turned it over six out of seven possessions. The only possession they scored was on a uh, a follow, a uh, carry follow, and two of the possessions, two of the turnovers were shot clock violations. 
it's just like that can't happen in overtime. Like this team, like they should be, there should be sets. There didn't seem like anything was going on. This is not the type of team where you can just give someone the ball and say, go get a bucket, unless it's carry against a much smaller guy. But then the other, if they know it's going there, something else has to be an option. As with everything, there has to be a plan B. There didn't seem to be a plan B. And that's what I find frustrating. Because I did think there was some good potential going on with the adaptation of Duke this year. Now I'm not sure unless his hand is unless K's hand is forced. So all, all we can do is hope, but it, it had that same similar feeling of the NCAA tournament upsets where nothing is going on on offense. The other team, they're playing really free with their own offense against Duke's defense and kind of everyone nervous, everyone locks up. And it's just not team basketball. And now you don't have those alphas. You don't have the studs. There needs to be constant team basketball. And Kate keeps talking about how it's an old school team, old school team. Then treat it like an old school team. Don't treat it like you've done in uh, in the one and done era is spread ISO stuff. It's not going to work. Especially in crunch time when the nerves pick up. Especially since you have these young guys. If you're self-aware enough to know what their skill set is and what they're capable of, then know that they need your help. So, the transition defense obviously was a huge issue. So here's where I'm really interested in what was told to the players because they kept saying... Or K kept saying whatever we would tell him, it just didn't work. Look, Stephen F. Austin, they were they're a really good rebounding team. So, and they are going to and and they're going to leak out. And the thing is, there's rebounding teams that like rely on team rebounding, and there's rebounding teams that can just kind of rebound with their bigs. Stephen F. Austin was able to just rebound with their bigs. So Duke, one of their strengths is offensive rebounding. That's their probably their biggest strength this year. So. Cassius Stanley, a lot of the times, was running to the rim for missed shots. At a certain point, stop. (laughs) Like, communicate to him. Like, stop doing that. Rotate back. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to take the risk, especially when most of them came on on corner attempts, corner field goal attempts, when it's a little bit harder to rotate back because it's... It's just not worth it if you get one rebound compared to, like, the risk of consistent leaking out. I mean, Winthrop, again, you can like, if you look at stats, that's where it gets kind of uh, noisy when you look at stats. They were actually number 90 in rebounding in the country. I think they're number 90 right now. But they did it against uh, really poor teams. And you could see they were not a great rebounding team. And Duke was... They, they were still sending everyone. I mean, there were times when uh, they would rotate back better, but st- it's a concern. It's a concern for when Duke plays teams that have bigs that are better rebounders because I didn't really see much of a change in the transition defense. When you have the aggressiveness trying to offensive rebound, which allows potential leakouts, when Duke's not getting any transition, even though they're playing really aggressive defense, when they're playing so far up on defense, 
and they're taking away a three that Stephen F. Austin won't even shoot. What what is their what is their ranking? Uh, their ranking three point uh, rate it means the the percentage of uh, shots they take that are three pointers. Let's look at this. Um, okay, they are three hundred and forty four. I believe that's out of three hundred and fifty three teams. Yeah. So. Are you sure you want to uh, really extend out that defense? Because like I said, by extending out that defense, it allows easier entries. If you're, if you're getting turnover, if you're forcing turnovers, then by all means, keep doing it. Duke wasn't. I'm talking live ball turnovers, something you could run on. And they couldn't even run on anything at a certain point. In the second half, I mean, like I said, they only got was a three transition possessions after like 1833 or 1633 or whatever it was. So, again, plan B. Plan B. There has to be a plan B. And there wasn't. So they kept extending that defense. They kept allowing the easy post entries. And then with, uh, with the bigs, with Stephen F. Austin's bigs, they would, they would just make plays. And it was really tough for Carey and Hurt. I mean, Hurt, while his offensive game is really developing... Defense is uh, defense is tough, and hopefully he can improve. But this season could be an interesting one, and that's why I think based on matchups, it's funny because last episode I said it, it, I think uh, Wendell Moore can play the four, and that would allow Baker to play the three, Stanley the two, and obviously Trey the one, carry carry the five. I think there will be matchups when Hurt is uh, much better to provide that offense, but that is uh, that's really risky defense. And one of the reasons I was I was hesitant to include Hurt is because Baker. I was worried about his defense, so there would just be all kinds of trouble. Baker, though, as I mentioned, is a lot better than I expected, at least in the competition level that he has faced. There's no guarantees of anything uh, with higher competition level, but he did a lot better than I thought. But in terms of communication, big to big, in terms of getting stuck in no man's land, Vernon Carey got stuck in no man's land a lot, a lot. And what Matthew Hurt does, especially against Winthrop, I saw a bunch, tons of, tons of clips with proof that he, he's guarding and then he just gets distracted or he watches for a second and he just straight loses his man or he won't rotate. Where he doesn't realize it, the I don't the awareness. It's uh, I mean that's something where hopefully experience can help. But I mean K, he is really high on him, and uh, rightfully so with the offense. But when you look at these defensive issues, Matthew Hurt is not helping. I'll I'll say that. So that's where I think uh, Wendell Moore is as much as uh, I mean. I don't know him. I don't. I don't. This is only based on when I've uh, heard, seen him speak. He just seemed really hard on himself. Hopefully, he keeps that confidence up. Hopefully, everyone else helps him keep that confidence up because he didn't. He didn't look the same um, against against uh, Winthrop after Stephen F. Austin. Because Stephen F. Austin, he was pretty bad. There's really no way around that. And uh, I mean, his turnovers. I mean, there's. His ball handling, 
has been a, his has been an issue all season in terms of the handle and the balance while dribbling. And I think he gets off balance. And I mean, he launched a pass like into like the twentieth row that was intended for Stanley against uh, Stephen F. Austin. I mean, the turnovers is just you can't just waste possessions. And with Stephen F. Austin, it was, it was uh, also Trey, not his best game. Definitely not his best game. So it just, I mean, Goldwire is not going to consistently be the best option in the backcourt. I thought Kay should have gone to Goldwire sooner. I think that would have been a much better option. I mean, especially with Stephen F. Austin. Again, if you're going to extend that defense, no matter what, even though I think they should have, uh, I mean, you look at Duke last year. What did teams do against Duke? They packed it in. Like, I don't understand why you wouldn't do that against Stephen F. Austin. I know they had a big turnover rate coming in, and they still do. In terms of steal rate, it's actually not that bad. It's like kind of mid, uh, mid-ranking mid in the country, like 170 or something. It's not good, but, I mean, and they do commit turnovers, but it's not a ton of live ball. But either way, Duke isn't forcing live ball, so it's just a combo, and it just doesn't work. So, hey, how about see if you can stop Stephen F. Austin half court. And a lot of times it it wasn't only just kind of that initial attempt, that big to big attempt. It was the the follow. They were getting a lot of second chances that won't show up on the offensive rebound stat sheet. But uh I mean I mean again it still counts. It still counts. So you combine that, you combine with not rotating back on defense or not doing well well enough. And and that's when I I really want to know like why, I mean, maybe Kay was telling them, like, rotate back, don't take unnecessary risks, offensive rebounding. But, I mean, that would be something that's just, like, I can't even imagine, like, if they keep saying that, I mean, these aren't, like, crazy people. Like, they're they're going to stop, like, just running in there for the offensive rebound. Like, and if he, and if they're literally being told, stop taking unnecessary risks, like Cassius, rotate back no matter what. Am I supposed to believe he's just ignoring them? I have trouble with that. So, I don't know what they were telling them, but there's very basic things against Stephen Austin, Stephen F. Austin they could have done to at least help before it got to the point where they would, I think, like in overtime, they just locked up. And that's understandable. I mean, the six turnovers and seven possessions, the final possession with what happened... Uh, and for whoever cares about, like, oh, he might have double dribbled. Like, who cares? Like, stop. I mean, you want to talk about, like, a crazy thing. Like, the foul that was called on Stephen F. Austin, I believe, with 29.3 left, that allowed Trey to make two, uh, two free throws to put him up to, that was one of the most insane calls I've seen in a long time. Trey just, like, he kind of, like, I think he got it from his brother, Tyus. Like, he did, like, this head snap. And the ref called it, and, like, the defender wasn't even, like, near him. And that's a situation where, like, I'm surprised, like, the defender didn't lose his mind. I mean, when you're when you're in a position like that, that I mean, I think it was a, a tie game at that point, 29 seconds left. You're at the number one team. Like, and that was actually kind of impressive by uh, the defender not to really... Not to be not to be mad about it. Just kind of moved on. It's like you know what, we'll just deal with it. I think the offense could have been a lot more creative, but even so, 
I don't think this season comes down to the offense. I don't think any season will come down to the offense. I think the offense is good enough. It's just about how good you can make it. And I think ba- it's really unfortunate that Baker and Stanley had never played big minutes together because I really wanted to see, I mean, not just them two, but like I wanted to see the combo of like Trey and put him in with uh, Carey and, like, and whoever else. But, I mean, now obviously Baker's necessary. So we'll we'll see what happens, but yeah, I mean, I thought Baker could have could have really helped versus Stephen F. Austin. I think Jack White, he got caught in no man's land a bunch too. I just think it was it was trouble with those bigs. I mean, once somebody gets into the lane, and I don't know, it was just it was just trouble. But again, the paint points, it was because the the ball was being entered too easily, just way too easily. So if you're going to extend out that much, you can't you can't allow it in, and it's it's really tough. Just I mean, not to allow an entry in, but otherwise, back off. You don't have to pressure the other team every time. And I will say, Stephen F. Austin deserves they they de- they deserve what they got, which is a win. There's there's nothing there's nothing that makes me feel like oh it was cheap it was, it was whatever they, they they deserve the win. No, I did mention Harris in terms of uh, Cassius being switched off of him. Harris, he got pretty much all his points in transition. It's still kind of wild that I think he only scored like six points, something like that, that didn't come in transition. It wasn't like Duke wasn't guarding him. It wasn't like that at all. I like I, I just I don't get Kay saying that. Coach K said they force turnovers. That's what they do. So a key factor in the ball game was to be strong with the ball, and we were not strong with the ball. They forced it, too. It's not like we were just careless with the ball. You sure about that? And he talked about how like there are a lot of layups that uh, Stephen F. Austin made off the turnovers. Like, I don't know, man. I mean, once it got to, like, a couple minutes into the second half, there wasn't a lot of that. There wasn't a lot. It was just bad rotations off of like missed shots or made shots or anything. Because, I mean, there was like the first half, there were some weird, weird, ugly turnovers. Like that, but they were like really unforced. I mean, when you, when you look at the turnover, the live ball turnovers, like Trey just threw it over Wendell's head with 1840 left in the first half. Then 1737. Uh, Wendell Moore just basically starts thinking about dribbling before he even catches the ball, so he never got control of it. I mean, they didn't really do anything to force that. So, uh, all right, here's a forced. Uh, 14.55 left. Javins under duress tried a low IQ pass across his body, which was picked. Um, So uh, the Wendell play led to a transition bucket, and the Javin play led to a transition bucket. Uh, let's see, 8.09 left in the first half. Matthew Hurd just pretty much fell down off, off the dribble, then tried a desperation scoop. No points off that. Uh, 7.50, Trey's trapped, lazy dribble, stolen, taken in for a transition bucket. Forced, still dumb, but that was forced. So, so far we've got six points off of, uh, off of the forced turnovers. All right, so here we go. Uh, Jack White. Catches a tray lob in one motion, tries a wraparound pass to Vern, which is picked off. Yes, that's forced, but like, what is Jack White doing trying that? 
Uh, all right, so we got 151 left. Uh, transition score when Vern rolls and Trey threw him a pass above the break, expecting him to pop. So it was behind him. I mean, that's on force. Led to a transition bucket. Let's see. Uh, in the second half, I mean, 13.45 left. Awful possession by Trey. Lazy pass to White at the right elbow. It's almost picked off. Super late delivery to uh, a rolling Javin for PNR. That's uh, picked. No points, but I mean, again, these are not like... All right, here we go. 11.35, O'Connell was stripped trying to dribble between two defenders from the left wing. Again, forced, but not smart. Second half, 7.15 left. Jack White gets a rip right out of his hands, gives up fast break transition bucket. All right, and then OT, obviously we know what happened there. So in terms of live ball turnovers that led to points like Katie thought happened a bunch... We got uh, the overtime. We got the Jack White play. We got, it was about 10, 12 points. And mo- most of it was in the first half. So in terms of what Kay's saying, like Duke, they had plenty of time to uh, right themselves, to right the ship. It wasn't the turnovers. They didn't turn over the ball much. I think they turned it over like four times in the second half after Something like like eighteen thirty three left, something around then. Before obviously before overtime. So it wasn't it wasn't the turnovers that were killing them in the second half. They were just giving up transition points and paint points, and I've explained what the paint points how they came. So I mean that's just something where, I don't know. I'd be interested. If he was asked about that, how he would react? Because, I mean, I guess being strong with the ball, it does apply in terms of just being, not making smart decisions. But he, but he really emphasized the fact that they were forced turnovers, and the mass majority of them were not. Were not. Moving on to Winthrop. K. Uh, he said he really liked what he saw against Winthrop. He said. You can lose a lot of confidence when you don't already have confidence. So he was he was really proud of them. I mean, they really were uh, down after the Stephen F. Austin game. I thought he didn't like how they were too confident with Stephen F. Austin, but I don't know. He said at the end of his career, he'll say the toughest opponent for a coach is human nature. He uh, praised Matthew Hurt a lot. He said wasn't good in New York with the 2K Classic, and they met, and Matthew worked harder. And, uh, yeah, I agree on offense. He, he's playing pretty well. On defense and rebounding, uh, there's some uh, slacking a bit there, and it is affecting the team. But hopefully that can improve because Kay seems very determined to speak very highly about him, and uh, hopefully he, he proves worthy of that. He was asked about playing time, and he said they get what they deserve. This is not a socialistic group here. It's not everyone gets the same amount of playing time. I can always look at a group in the locker room and say, basically, playing time is there for you. Go and get it. If a kid doesn't get an opportunity, that's different. All these kids have been given opportunities and will be given plenty of opportunities. I'm just curious what Joey Baker did between Stephen F. Austin and uh, Game Day Winthrop to deserve more of an opportunity. Because he played three minutes versus Stephen F. Austin. And there was a miscommunication where he came to get the ball from Trey, and Trey thought he was going to be 
That was the three-point line, so that was a turnover. And the, but that was, like, basically it. Like, nothing happened. So after three minutes, I guess he determined that Joey either was undeserving or wasn't a good matchup, and that was it. Three minutes in the first half. Winthrop, I guess he was he was a better matchup, but I don't know. I, I mean, it's easy to say because of Cassius, but Joey was already doing well before that. So I... I I don't know. That's just, that's just, that's tough to kind of, tough to kind of understand. I mean, I, I'm not going to say I don't believe him, but I think we've seen it before in terms of the rotations. And it's interesting how a lot of these rotations this year has been really big minutes for a limited number of group each game. And I'm just, I mean, you can determine it in like two minutes in the first half. Because Stephen F. Austin, there really wasn't... I think there was like Javin subbed for Vernon for a couple minutes. But... And uh, Jack White and Matthew Hurd a little bit. Like, they switched. But, like, that was it. I mean... It was mostly uh, five guys, six, just like usual. And I... I I kind of said, like, preseason... Like, when, when he said it was going to be like almost like a hockey ro- rotation... I didn't see that happening towards the end of the season. I mean, I, I'm the one who did the whole rotation deep dive, the minutes breakdown in terms of what it ends up with every year, with every team with K. And the mass majority of times, it is about 10 to 15 minutes past the six man. So I thought maybe it could be seven deep. But, I mean, it's tough to go beyond that. I mean, right now, like, it's almost like end-of-the-year stuff, but it just kind of switches around. And so it was almost like, I don't want to say nice, or I don't want I don't want to do the cliche thing, oh, it's good in the long run. Um, without Cassius, they, ex- they, ex- they went back to, like, or he went back to an expanded rotation. But it did give more options. Because this team, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's it's interesting how... I mean, if you like combined some of some of the guys, like if uh, like uh, Vernon Carey and Javin Delorier, if you combined Vernon's kind of steadiness and obviously size and touch with Javin's energy and defense, I mean that that would be great. I mean Javin actually it made me happy. Like there was uh, one issue he had when he bumped into Joey Baker. Um, which caused a turnover against Winthrop, but he had a fir- he had his first uh, quality game in a while. Not great, but qual- but I would say quality. And I almost thought I caused his issues because the first couple games this season, he he was really good. I, I think uh, after three games, I, I actually went on a rant t- talking about how I don't understand why Javin's not appreciated. He was so good last year. He's been so good, and just no and like everyone. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me why he gets constantly crapped on by fans, media. Like, people really get a kick out of dogging him, and it doesn't make sense to me. And then, of course, he had some rough, he had a rough stretch. I mean, there's no way around it. He had a rough stretch. He was still doing a lot of good things. It's a lot of quality he's giving to Duke, but still, it was too often he had uh, moments of, uh, or he had possessions where it just, I mean, didn't go well, to, to be honest. And little, I mean, the foul rate was out of control. There were some turnovers. 
but uh, hopefully this gets him back on track. It's just a matter of just slowing down a bit. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, yeah, so so in ter- just in terms of Winthrop, I will say people got to stop. People really got to stop thinking that Duke's supposed to crush every team. It's just not going to happen like that. I mean, this team is n- never going to do that. I mean, I said from like before they played one game, I said that. Like this, that was the least hard to predict aspect about this team. So, I, I, I don't like if you can't deal with it, then just stop watching. That's all there is to it. I'm not going to get into the whole fan thing. So, that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Um, Kay was asked about Trey's turnovers the past two games. He answered specifically about Winthrop, telling the reporter he uh, the reporter would have turned the ball over 80 times if he was guarded by Russell Jones. Um, I think Russell Jones is like 5'8", around that height. Uh, Uke said, reminding him of, yeah, Muggsy Bogues. He said he's going to turn a lot of people over. A lot, referring to Russell Jones. So out of uh, Trey's one, two, out of Trey's five turnovers... Take a wild guess how many were caused by Russell Jones. Zero. He wasn't guarded by Russell Jones during any of that. Like, it does, like, I don't get it. Like, it had nothing to do with Russell Jones. But also, it didn't have a lot to do with Trey either. Because when you go down 16-50, he and Wendell miscommunicated. His pass to Moore goes out of bounds because uh, Wendell went the wrong direction. Um, 13-15. There was an ISO on Valdrin um, for uh, Winthrop. He swiped down on Trey's drive. It hits off Trey's knee. It's kind of impossible to tell from the camera angle, but Trey seemed to think it was a foul. I don't know. Um, the, here was the bad possession. Uh, 12-20 left in the second half. Uh, lazy pass to Jack White, the right elbow. That's almost picked off. Then waits way too long to hit Javin on the PNR roll into the basket. Pass tipped. Leads to transition on the other end. 8.33 left, blob alley-oop, where Vernon just falls down, going to the basket. Like, that's not on Trey. Then, uh, second half, 7.17 left, Trey's lob into Hurt from the right wing is tipped and taken by the defender because Hurt didn't seal off. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it. Like, you, you're kind of, you're live in the moment. Maybe Kay didn't realize it, but it's, it's kind of odd how he, it's, he, uh, from when I've listened, seen his pressers, he does bring some stuff up, which I don't know. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's not true in terms of, uh, some of the stuff he says. He's just, I don't know. He's very protective about certain players and not protective about others. But one thing he did emphasize was the fact that, uh, everyone's going to have an opportunity. So, I mean, he said they're going to need Alex O'Connell. And something I've been very, very steadfast on is the fact that Duke Wendell Moore, they're hoping to get to that point. And I said, be patient with him and you've needed to be because uh, there's been some, there's been plenty of ups and downs. Whoever thought Georgetown kind of solidified and I mean, he had seven turnovers in that game. It's going to be an adventure with him. So just kind of ride the roller coaster. Alex O'Connell is someone who can create for himself and others. It has been Alex O'Connell and Cassius Stanley. Those are the two who I've said. Trey, he can, but he does need help. He needs action created. Stanley and O'Connell, I think they are more natural at doing it. And Stanley, he he was actually 
get starting to improve at uh, creating for others. Still not great, still not totally natural, but he was starting to improve. He's out. So what are you going to do? Like, you can't, I mean, if you're not getting out in transition and converting in transition, are you just going to rely on offensive rebounds all the time in order to get kind of free points besides being super efficient in the half court? I don't know. I mean, it seems like Alex O'Connell might come in very handy against uh, against Michigan State and Virginia Tech. But again, he comes with risks. But you might have to take those risks now because there's there's. I, I mean, I should, I don't know if Joey Baker can uh, create for others. I would at this point I wouldn't count it out. I've never seen him try, but I'm not sure how that would go. Alex O'Connell. I mean, even against Kansas, he wasn't scoring much. He wasn't really efficient shooting. I mean, he's never been efficient shooting besides against zone. But he was doing a great job creating for others. It's the defensive awareness that can be the huge risk. That's, that's uh, I mean, especially with these uh, rotation issues back in transition. And that's, I mean, with the transition... I've mentioned pretty much everything possible about this team already. I haven't mentioned transition defense as a possible issue. I actually didn't even mention transition um, going up against uh, press, press offense. And those two things I do regret because I try to uh, include everything. Um, I, I mentioned last time like I felt bad about not including uh, zone possibilities on, on uh, two episodes ago. And Georgetown, they struggled at times against the press offense because, like I said, that second ball handler, I mean, Wendell Moore is an adventure. And while I thought Cassius Stanley could be that, uh, could be a guy to potentially be the second ball handler, obviously they didn't feel like they could trust him. Occasionally he'll handle, but not much. So if you don't have Jordan Goldwire on there with Trey, then who's it going to be? But the only other option, at least from what I see, is O'Connell. So, again, I mean, that's another reason to put O'Connell out there. It's actually nice to see Trey play a little more off-ball with Goldwire out there. And, again, Goldwire is going to have, he's going to be important. He's going to play important minutes, not consistently. I hope it's not big, consistent minutes, but I want it to be every game for periods of time. I think he has huge value. I just think the value gets a little deterred when he's out there for too long because, I mean, the offense is just such a liability. And I actually thought two of his steals were really created by Baker. And uh, Goldwire has, like, I mean, he's good awareness and kind of sneaky, was able to to uh, steal from Baker's man um, with help, help defense. But Baker really, he shut, he shut it down. And, I mean, Baker, again, the defense was really surprisingly good. Baker's going to be good, man. Baker's going to be good. It's going to be fun to, to watch him. He's going to piss some people off. He plays hard, and he is, he is super enthusiastic. Very, very super enthusiastic. So... I mean, in terms of uh, Winthrop talking about like the dribble drive that I, I said, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Cornette, 
Jordan Cornette was talking about, I think a, a lot of it was <laughs> happened when Matthew Hurt got switched on to someone because he just kind of he struggled. So I think that's another thing you got to do because always switched one through four, some seasons even one through five. I think this season's been one through four. It can be risky at, at times. I think you might want to try to fight through some some of those screens a little more. I mean, especially, again, when I when I talked about how good the backcourt was, now it's now there's questions. How quick everything changes from what I say is the best defensive backcourt in Kay's era to now, who knows? I mean, Goldwire is really good. Really good. I don't think he's cash as good, and it's obviously offense, very limited. But Goldwire's not gonna need to be out there more. And if they're gonna if they're gonna rely on defense and it's it's gonna be interesting to see, like if it's Goldwire or O'Connell, what's needed more, offense or defense? I think there'll be times for both. But for this season, I mean if you look at I mean, as ugly as some of that offense was against Stephen F. Austin, it did come down to the defense. It came down to transition, defensive transition, rotating back. And it came down to just basic strategy of stop extending out the damn half-court defense and leaving the bigs all alone when you know that's the weakness of your of your team on defense. Like, it just doesn't make sense to keep doing it over and over. The definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. You got to be able to adapt. You got to be able to change and do it fluidly within the game. See, um, in terms of uh, others, I mean, oh, yeah, I, I was talking about transition. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember actually going through, like, the 2015 team, the championship team. The thing I harped on more than anything else was defensive transition rotating back. That was by far the biggest weakness. Once they got that down, it was good to go. Along with, obviously, Matt Jones in there um, for uh, extra defensive help and Emil Jefferson coming off the bench. But that team, they had issues. It was the first kind of uh, majority young guys in the starting lineup team. And from then out, it's been an issue. And I talked about it for the next three years after and then last year, it wasn't. And I think I took it for granted. I remember Gonzaga, it was. It was for one game. After that, though, it really, it was remarkable how much it wasn't. And I do think the Zion factor has a lot to do with that. Those kind of LeBron-esque chase down blocks. But And I also think the fact that Trey, he was kind of always just back there because, <laughs> to be honest, he wasn't involved too much. In the offense, so as soon as the shot went up, he would just rotate back no matter if he was in the corner or above the break or wherever. But I, I do. I think I took I, – I think I saw what that team did, and I just kind of went forward with it. And I didn't talk nearly enough about potential transition uh, issues. And just – I mean, I did talk a ton about communication and leadership and talking which is especially huge on defense, and that relates to what 
Duke's issues were on defense, especially in transition, and they don't have huge talkers. They have got I mean, they like Jack White. That's why he's out there as much as he is. He's in the right spot, and he's going to be out there, even though he didn't play big minutes. I think just because you can trust that he'll do what is in the system. Whereas other guys, they might freelance when they shouldn't at times, but yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll see how this goes. I mean, Jack White, it's interesting because he played so many minutes in New York and then all of a sudden it dropped off. So yeah, the minutes can change, but it's, but it's always like huge or little for, for a lot of these guys. And I don't know, it's odd. I mean, Vernon Carey, I think you got to watch out just judging him by stats. Because if you just judge him by stats, he, then that means basically you're looking at, like, Goliath right now. And I think he's played against a lot of smaller guys. I think when you look at him against guys that can physically match up better, I think that's when... It gets a little more telling. I mean, even I mean on offense, I would say he's he he put up uh, great numbers against Stephen F. Austin. Obviously, the free throw shooting like that, that's just blatant. Like needs to get better, which is odd because his motion looks really good. It's interesting. Um, but on defense, he would get bullied. He got he got bullied on on defense and rebounding, and even on offense, he's just he's he's huge, but he's still he kind of. He goes up with, uh, he's a little soft going up. Like, just go up strong. And when he does, it's it's unstoppable. You just, I mean, it's definitely not fear. It's not like a, he's a soft person or anything like that. He's just, I mean, when you haven't played inside much, he hasn't played in the post much, everything's kind of an adaptation. And, that's why I'm wondering, like, I mean, I assume he played in the post in high school on defense. So that's why, but I mean, defense is just, it's an adjustment no matter what. That's why I'm always more impressed with those who are really good on defense as freshmen than I am surprised at those who aren't, because that's always an adjustment. Um, so, I mean, they just, they need help. And the thing with Cassius that we're going to miss the most it's just he's a dog, man. On defense, on offense, he I mean, he's the guy that's fearless. He's the guy that you could see he was getting more and more comfortable. He's willing to yell he he was willing to yell at dudes. He's willing to just be the guy. Doesn't mean he would always succeed, and there is going to be a learning curve. But now with the team, like, who knows? And I think there's two guys on the team who I would say play with Kind of a a no fear type of uh, mentality. It's Cassius and it's Joey Baker. It's very different types of no fear. Joey Baker just plays free. I mean, Joey Baker really, he's confident in himself. I'll say that. Cassius is just he. I mean, he's he's a killer. So it's it's kind of different, but exactly the same. And that's again why I wanted to see those two guys out at the same time. I think Trey. He, he's, he's developing into a guy who can be kind of, hopefully, an alpha of a college team, but it's still, I'm not sure it comes natural to him. But, I mean, either way, vocal or lead by example, he commands respect, and there's no doubt about that. Like, he has a complete respect 
of everyone around him. So I think with Stephen F. Austin, what you need to take away from that game is the fact that they, yes, it was on them. They had the big lead. They were up 15, and they just made some silly mistakes. But also, you gotta you got to ask yourself, what exactly was communicated to them in terms of offensive rebounding? Like, were they really told specifically, like, stop? <laughs> like, as soon as, as soon as the shot goes up, rotate back. Were they told that and they just ignored that? Because to me, I'm not saying that was definitely the case or definitely not the case. It's just hard to imagine. And then the defense. Why wasn't, why didn't they adjust? Why didn't they just pack it in? Stephen F. Austin doesn't make threes. They don't make threes. And if you're not turning them over, then adjust. Because otherwise you're playing right into their hands. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Hey, email me, DukeBasketballCorner at Gmail. I've got so many clips. I mean, as I said, like I go through each game, like break down the video clips and everything. Winthrop, same thing. Um, I, I, I Like Winthrop... I mean, Coach K, he, he, kept, he kept like really giving them credit in terms of like we've been playing some really good teams and all, all that stuff. Winthrop, the, yeah, they're a good team. They actually were very even, like really even. I think like they had four guys score nine points. They, their leading score had 11. They had uh, four guys with nine and eight, a couple guys with six. I mean, they were really, really even. But, uh, I mean, I'd say it's a good win. Anything's a good win. Right now, I mean, I don't predict them as a tourney team, although the mid-major conference tournaments, you kind of never know. I do like, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, they were really fun backcourt because they have one guy with Russell Jones, the freshman, who's just going to be a, a menace um, to everyone. He, I, I, I love the way he plays, no fear. And then they have another guy, Valdron, who plays like your grandfather at the YMCA. <laughs> I kind of like that. I mean, uh, so he's like, he, it's a same Jalen Brunson type of thing where it looks like, I mean, he, he plays so slowly, but it's always within his own control. It's, it's the old Andre Miller. If anyone remembers him, um, for, uh, he played college at, uh, Utah. I think he played in NBA Utah. So, so, um, yeah, I mean, just that he, he would back guys down and he's a really big guard, Slash point combo guard combo forward, and uh, it, so I I like the way they do it and and uh, may I, it, it's interesting how a team like that which does shoot a lot of threes struggles to make free throws because almost like Vernon Carey the motion looks good, but just doesn't go in from the free throw line. Valdron same thing like I don't know I mean he's I think he's like forty or thirty percent or something and it looks good when he shoots so. I don't get it. I mean, obviously there's a mental thing, but uh, you never know with uh, free throws. All right, I think that, I mean, in terms of Michigan State and Virginia Tech, with this team, every, every everything's new. Everything is new. It's tough to just say, hey, we'll build on this, we'll develop this, because you never know how it's going to go, and I find that really pretty cool. No, this team is not going to be the level of... Uh, 
talent. Or I'm you no, know, this team's not going to be the level of uh, wins and losses you might be used to. So, if you have trouble kind of looking at them from a different perspective in terms of just rooting for them to be as best as they can, that's that's all I said I wanted in the season preview. There's nothing about this team that disappoints me. All I can do is evaluate them in the in the way that they, that they're playing. I'll I'll keep watching. I'll keep uh, seeing what's going on. This podcast was by far the most rambly. I think any podcast has been in years. In years, there's no doubt about that. So. Get at me if you want to be a uh, if you're interested in the co-host because uh, hey keep me keep me under control keep me in one direction because I think it's I think it's better when it kind of like it helps me organize things I know uh, this one was a little scattered but and I'm sure I still kind of uh, forgot some stuff because I mean I wrote a bunch of stuff down but I kind of just went from uh, went from the dome here I didn't want to do too much stats I just wanted to talk about things. As they actually are. Because I think what's generally going on right now is a lot of extremes. And a lot of unknown. The unknown is fine. The extremes are unnecessary. I think with this team, just enjoy. Just enjoy. And, uh, yeah. I I think that's about it because, uh. As I said at the start, this season, I mean, it could bring another few years. It could add on another few years to whatever Coach K might have thought would be in his career. Or it could take a couple away. You never know. That's that's just what this team could do. And there's a lot of guys that have potential. And who knows what could bring him out, bring it out. I mean, sometimes with uh, when, when somebody goes down, another guy you wouldn't expect who steps up, maybe Wendell Moore can... Uh, Start showing more and more of the consistency. Because you know he has the talent. Or at least I know he has the talent. So hopefully he gets that confidence up. And hopefully we get some good news on Cassius Stanley. And he'll be back by, I mean, latest New Year. If not uh, BC. And that's all there is to it. So yes, it was not a great week. Duke went down to Stephen F. Austin. Beat Winthrop in a way that wasn't exactly uh, dominating. Hopefully, we have we have good stuff to talk about. I will develop a much more organized way to uh, talk about it. But I think sometimes it can be good just to talk off, just straight off the uh, top of top of the head. And uh, yeah, if you uh, if you like, rate, review, and uh, help me out, and I will be talking you soon because this is the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'm Adam Palmer and I'll be back with you after Virginia Tech.